Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Hi, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I have an anthology coming out called Moms Don't Have Time 2, a quarantine anthology. And it comes out on February 16th and has essays by 60 plus of the authors who have been on this podcast. So first of all, please pre-order this book. I think you will love it. I'm so excited about all the authors who are represented. Um, just to give you a few, um, Chris Bajalian, uh, Jewel Parker Rhodes, Ashley Prentice Norton, Gretchen Rubin, Rima Zaman, Eileen Zimmerman. And that is just from the first page of the multi-page table of contents. So please pick up this book, Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology. It's available anywhere you buy books, Amazon, bookshop.org, and your local independent bookstore. So please pick up a copy. And also, I want to invite you listeners to my um, fundraiser slash launch party the night it comes out on February 16th, a Tuesday at 7 p.m., Bookhampton and the Children's Museum of the East End are co-hosting it for me. And 50 of the authors who wrote essays in this book, as well as many of the amazing authors who blurbed this book, um, who wrote little praiseworthy quotes at the, at the front, will be there. And you can be there too. So if you go to my website, zibbyowens.com, and just click on Anthology and go to Book Tour, you will see um, a whole fundraiser section. And for $50, um, you can attend. You'll get a copy of the book, and you'll get to schmooze on Zoom with all of these amazing authors. This is like going to be the literary happening of February. So please come. I would love to see you all in person on Zoom, I guess, but even see some of your faces. I know so many of you are really loyal listeners, and that makes me really happy. All proceeds of the book and the fundraiser are going to the Susan Felice Owens Program for COVID-19 Vaccine Research at Mount Sinai Health System. And it is named after my husband's mother, who passed away from COVID over the summer, which many of you followed along on Instagram as I uh, recounted that horrific experience. So all the proceeds are going there. The cost includes the price of a book. So thank you for supporting this effort and for supporting my book. I can't wait to see you there. Today's episode has been sponsored by Chicken Soup for the Soul, Making Me Time, 101 Stories About Self-Care and Balance, edited by Amy Newmark. This is a fantastic collection of essays, and everyone will find something relatable and that they can use to make their lives better within these essays. Lauren Edmondson is the author of Ladies of the House, a debut novelist. She has a BA from Williams College and an MFA in fiction from Sarah Lawrence. She currently lives in Northern Virginia with her husband and two children. Welcome, Lauren. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you, Zibby. Thanks for having me. It's a thrill and an honor. 
Oh, it's exciting for me too. Let's start. First of all, I have to say congratulations on your baby who I saw on Instagram. And that was Thank like you. not that long ago. What is he? He's three months or something now? He's no. two months. Yeah. Two months. Like, two clearly months. I can't even do math. I don't even know what month we're in actually now. So <laughs> I mean, I could be wrong, you know, like I could, there's a chance that he's three months. So yeah, he, well, this actually gives me an excuse to like put on some mascara, throw on a pearl, you know, so (laughs) I haven't been doing that for many weeks. So it felt good. Well, welcome back to the the land of the living here. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I can't promise you that I'm wearing pants with buttons, but I'm getting close. You know what I mean? I'm closer than I was. I am not wearing pants with buttons. (laughs) Is that a requirement? I don't even think I have any pants with buttons. I have like one pair of jeans (laughs) and the rest are, you know, basically pregnancy type pants, even though, you know, my last child was born, what, six years ago. So, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Parity has these pants now that are kind of like that, that have the same band as maternity pants, which I yeah. always wish somebody would make as regular pants. So anyway, now yeah. I wear those if I wear pants at all, which I'm- Yeah, it's, yeah. it's much needed. Yeah. Anyway, that was too much information about <laughs> my wardrobe and your wardrobe, but I really just want to say congratulations on your baby and how impressive it is that you have a book coming out so soon after a baby came out and you're like launching both these things into the world at basically the same time. Yeah. How is that going? Like, <laughs> I assume that, I mean, did you, what did you know first? <laughs> the book date or the baby the date? Book. The yes, book. Yes. Okay. The book. And I found out I was pregnant the day that, well, I live in Virginia. So the day that our governor announced the lockdown in Virginia, I took a pregnancy test. (laughs) Those, yeah. And my daughter, I have a four-year-old daughter and her school closed. And so I was going through the early days of the lockdown as well as my early days of pregnancy. And so I had a lot of feelings about that. And we were, my lovely editor, Melanie Freed, and I were working like crazy trying to get the final edits done before we had to submit the book. And so that was such an intensive process. So you know, I have this memory of my laptop on my lap, my ginger ale and saltines next to me and the television on and my daughter just bouncing on the couch, like over me and like over my computer. And I just had such tunnel vision. I just didn't even care. You know, I was just like, don't touch my keyboard. (laughs) Whatever else you do, I don't care. So that was a lot of television for her in those days. But, you know, she watched one particular show, like, you know, well, you have, you know, kids, so, you know, they get into these cycles where it's like their favorite thing and their favorite episode. So she was really into the show on Netflix in those early, like, quarantine days. And so now, sorry. Which, Which one? Oh, it's a show on Netflix called True. I don't know where she found it. You know, it had all those bright colors. I'm just always looking for good stuff for my kids. So yeah, um, well, okay. Anyway, so she's watching True. You never know. A little little too young for her, but it's like it has a very distinctive like opening credit song. And so whenever now now she watches it, not 
you know, as much as she did back then. But like, I have this physical like memory of the nausea and the, and the anxiety and like the sweat, you know, the, the flop sweat of like trying to get this novel done. And I have to like leave the room, you know, because it just brings back almost like smell triggers memory. That sound triggers the memory of those early, you know, panicky, dark days. (laughs) of my pregnancy. Wow. Well, that's a way to start it off. Although I have to say, and I want to talk about your book and not spend more time on this, but the idea that you can actually have an entire pregnancy in lockdown is kind of amazing when I think of what I had to show people when I was out and about in the world with all the varying sizes of the different pregnancies. So anyway, and maybe it's a blessing in some way, but back to ladies of the house, your second baby of- of the quarantine. Can you please tell listeners what Ladies of the House is about and what inspired you to write it? Sure. So Ladies of the House is a modern retelling of Sense and Sensibility. And the novel starts as Sense and Sensibility did with this family that's mourning the loss of the patriarch. In Ladies of the House, the recently deceased Senator Gregory Richardson has, it turns out, died in a rather inglorious way that leads to a pretty big scandal in D.C. and the nation because he had been a very prominent senator. And the scandal lands squarely on the doorstep of the women that he left behind. Daisy, his oldest daughter who had followed him into politics, Wallace, his youngest daughter, who is the outspoken progressive of the family and had just returned from a couple years teaching abroad, and his wife, Cricket, who not only has to deal with losing the man who she spent her life with, but also now reckoning with the fact that this man was a liar and a cheater and a thief. And So these women, you know, have to, even though this man, this, you know, the center of their solar system for so many years is dead, they still have to deal with this mess that he left behind and pick up their lives, pick up their love lives, their careers, and try to figure out where they go from there, both individually and collectively as a family. Well, it is really salacious in the way you portrayed even the scandal and the dinging of the cell phone. That's the scandal break. You have the scandal break during a memorial service, which yeah. is brilliant. And you have all the dinging and everything. And then as you, you know, then the family has to all figure out what each of them knew. And that scene was also hilarious. Like the way it all gets introduced is like, you can't stop reading it. It's very engrossing. And the tone makes you as an author feel like very likable. Like you're very funny. So it's great. I mean, thank you. I feel like when you talk about a book being based on a classic, like Sense and Sensibility, there might be this misconception that this is like trying to be, you know, like a modern day flourishy, do you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah, more like, literary classic. This is like a super relevant today, like your best friend is telling you the story type of book. Yeah. You know, so that's so that's perfect. That's exactly the book that I set out to write. And, 
yeah, I mean, you know, Austin was hilarious, like <laughs> laugh out loud funny. I mean, there's parts I remember when my daughter was just born, she had, this was four years ago, she had a terrible like acid, not acid reflux. She just had reflux. So after every time, did this happen to one of your kids? It did. Almost so anything know. that happens to somebody's kid has happened to one of my kids. I've, I've realized by this point, but yes, one of my kids. Yes, has. you've run the gamut. Yeah. So so you know this, after they feed, you have to hold them upright for 20 minutes. So I had a lot of time on my hands. So I just ended up reading as I was holding her. I read aloud Pride and Prejudice and I just found myself just read it aloud. Wait, you read it aloud to her? Yeah. Huh. Okay. Amazing. Yeah. I had, like I said, I had a lot of time on my hands and I just found myself giggling and just laughing and sense and sensibility too. I mean, some of the stuff that comes out of Marianne's mouth is just so funny. And I think if you were, if you are, or were at least my goal for like trying to do Austin justice was trying also to capture that lighthearted, you know, giggly, girlfriend dishy kind of story that I'd argue she's she should be just as well known for of course of like in addition to the the themes that you know are still resonant 200 years after she was writing well I have to admit I have not read Jane Austen lately I feel like I can't even say that on a literary podcast but <laughs> it's been a very long time since I read Jane Austen so maybe if I need a good laugh from 200 years ago I'll, I'll pick that up in my yeah my spare time, but I'd much rather read your book right now. So that's better. And I just had one quick question because you had a scene in the beginning where Daisy decided only to wear certain colors, which I thought was also genius. Is that something that you have ever considered? Cause you said, I guess she went to a fitting room and only decided to wear from that time on like grays and creams and blacks and something else. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah, she, that's not something that Daisy and I have in common, but I just felt like it was such a telling part of her character that she was, or she had made this decision to really edit her wardrobe in this very meticulous way, just for ease. You know, she works, she's the chief of staff for a senator. So she's working, you know, 80, 90 hour weeks. So she did it, I think, for for ease, but she also is, you know, unlike her younger sister, and this is true for Sense and Sensibility too, she she's much more comfortable, you know, in a supporting role, like in the background, you know, standing in the wings, you know, that's where she feels most comfortable. So it would make sense to her that she has this sort of like very muted, you know, like color palette that she gravitates towards. Well, it made me want to go upstairs and just like toss out all the clothes that are not in like a specific color scheme. Cause how much easier would that be? Like I do that if I pack, I'm like, I'm only going Navy or I'm only going like black and then I can, you know, but anyway, I just thought in terms I know. of life. Simple. I find myself gravitating to like a lot. And like what I'm wearing right now, like a lot of blue, like a lot of chambray and like, I'm, you know, Ina Garden and I have that in common. <laughs> 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 like, I wish I could be like Ina Garden. No, but I find, you know, and whenever I'm in a shop, well, I'm not so much anymore, but, you know, I'm always reaching for like those, like a really nice denim shirt. You know, it's just really comfortable. I have a chambray, like denim 
dress that I got that Instagram ad like kept sending me over and over again. And finally I was like, well, I just have to get this. And then I yeah. got it. It's great. <laughs> like, yeah. Anyway, I'll send you this in case you don't have it. I'll, I'll find the label and send it to you. Please do. Please do. I'm a sucker for Instagram targeted ads. I mean, right? they're just... actually good. I don't know how they do. Anyway, I'm sorry. They're listening to us, Sibby. That's how they... <laughs> oh, they're listening right now. <laughs> okay. Instagram, chambray shirt, round up, please. I'm going to open Instagram after this interview and I'm going to be like, oh, well, that's the dress that she was talking about. <laughs> oh my gosh. If that happens, I can't even, that's crazy. Okay. So let's go back. So you wrote this book with such an insidery voice, right? That you knew like the ins and outs of everything. Tell me how you got all this information and to, and like, take me back a little for your own backstory. I know you went to Williams. I know you live in Virginia, but I don't know all that much else that you haven't revealed in your bio and other public places. So tell me a little more about your background and how you, how we ended up here today. I grew up slightly outside the Beltway in Northern Virginia, but you know, we both, my immediate family, as well as, you know, the collective region that I live in are immersed in, you know, politics 24 seven. And my mother still works in government and local government. My father has served in various positions in Virginia. And so, you know, I just have memories of like my parents, you know, hosting like local politicians, you know, in our house, like growing up. And so, you know, politics for me was always, I always conceived of it as a force for good. You know, I never had this sort of Ooh, like DC is the swamp, you know, kind of outsider, you know, I just never, like, I never did. I always thought this was something that we should aspire to was like, you know, honorable leadership. When I was in high school, I interned with then Senator from Montana. So all of the like scenes of Daisy and her boss and the staff, like in the office, like I got that from, because I, you know, was fortunate enough to work there, you know, for a time and kind of see how, you know, I was a really a low, low, low level intern. Like I walked the Senator's dog, you know, and sorted mail, but at least I sort of got a lay of the land. Like this is how a Senator's office looks in the inside. You know, this is how kind of So that was very helpful when it came to like writing the book. And of course, you know, I came of age during like Clinton. And so that was very much like on everybody's mind. And that was sort of a a turning point, you know, to realize like, oh, this search for, you know, power, even if one is trying to be altruistic and wield their power for good, it it gets really thorny because of our, you know, our human condition. And it goes, you know, it can do funny things to people. I think Daisy says it later, someplace in the in the novel, she says, you know, power doesn't corrupt. It just amplifies what's already there, which I think is very telling. And we see it again and, and again. Daisy also says at some point, she says, the only thing uglier than politics is love. And so when politics and love collide, it can get, it can get messy. And so, you know, I had this like all in my head for a long time, these themes of politics and power and gender. And 
I sort of put those aside (laughs) for years because when I, after I went to Williams, I started, I lived in New York actually for many years. I worked at the New York Botanical Garden asking people, you know, for money and donations, which was deeply uncomfortable for the waspiness of me. And um, it was there where I thought and decided to get my MFA. I went to Sarah Lawrence and I worked, I continued working as I got my MFA. And I started work on this novel, which became my first novel, not this one, but the one that eventually got me Sarah Fair, my wonderful literary agent. And she took me on as a client and we did, we went out on submission and sort of weeks kind of turned into months. And she called me and in the loveliest way possible was like, so (laughs) we're not getting any nibbles. Do you have anything else? And, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert talks about like ideas as being these like, you know, living kind of butterfly type creatures, you know, in the ether that sort of choose the people that they want to land on. And, and I really felt that I felt that way with this current book, because as that door closed on the novel that didn't sell, I was actually not that disappointed because I had this like idea sort of chirping at me on my shoulder. And that was to, you know, retell Sense and Sensibility in DC. We have so many wonderful retellings of Pride and Prejudice but not so many on Sense and Sensibility, which I find kind of odd because it is so resonant today, you know, for us today. And the things that Austin was writing about, especially for women, is still so meaningful for us. And I think there's so many lessons still to be gleaned from her. So, you know, my editor, excuse me, my agent, when she asked me, you know, do you have any ideas? I said, oh, I actually, I do, I have one. And this was in 2016, 2017, And so we had just had this major presidential election and I was very, very curious about what Austin would think about that and what that meant for women and, you know, women in power and the kind of rules that still confine us and how many of those rules are made by men and the patriarchy and also women, you know, buying into hitching their wagon to the, that star, you know, so that curiosity kind of just like, you know, followed me into the book. And we went through many, many revisions. Cause I just, I had to, I felt like, especially that first draft, I was working through a lot of feelings, you know, around that time. And like the first early draft had Daisy, like on a white horse riding the streets of DC, like smiting her enemies. Like it was like a vengeance story. And my editor, you know, my amazing editor was like, Hmm, you know, maybe you want to just turn the volume down a bit on like the, the smiting of the enemies, you know, why don't we, why don't we, you know, look as Austin did always to, to hope and to love and to connection. And of course that's, that was the right answer. And that's what the book eventually became. And then what, then you just sat and wrote it? Like how long did that take? Yeah. So once I started, it was like a year and a half that it actually sort of took me to write the first draft. And then it went out on submission and it was bought like fairly quickly, but then Melanie and I did 
a solid year of really intensive edits. The editing process was way more rigorous than I thought. You know, I was like, oh, I'm just going to, you know, change a word here. Like, you know, thesaurus, like change an adjective. And that, that was not how it went. So it was a steep learning curve for me. And luckily I had a, an editor who was very generous with her time that kind of walked me through this process because I really had no idea. I mean, what the ins and outs of publishing was. I mean, you're launching a book, you know, so like, has anything surprised you, you know, about this, like about this process, about this business? It's all, it's all surprising. (laughs) (laughs) I have a current round of emails going around about something that I'm really trying hard to change because I'm like, this doesn't make sense to me. And everyone's like, but this is how it works. I'm like, well, I don't know. Anyway. Well, yes, it's a lot of, I know. The business side of it, I think is, was very illuminating to me. And, you know, I, I thought back to this whole process, you know, I thought back to my time at Williams when I was, you know, writing very angsty short stories and the fiction workshop, my, you know, fiction workshop classes that were taught by Jim Shepard, who's like one of, you know, the great American short story writers. And he said, you know, on one of the first days of like, you know, freshman seminar, he was like, if you can think of anything else to do <laughs> in your life, do that. And I was like, oh crap, I can't think of anything else. <laughs> but then he gave me hope because I was not like the best writer, you know, in his class. I mean, it was very, very clear to me very early on. Like I was not the star, you know. But he also said this, he said, if everybody who had talent wrote a book, we would be swimming. We'd be doing the breaststroke down Fifth Avenue through novels because this business is not necessarily about talent. It's about work. It's about the slog. It's about the grind. And it's about taking the work seriously. You know, he described it as like a romantic relationship. You know, he was like a couple hours a week, you know, devoted to this craft. Like, what is that? You know, that's not a relationship. That's not, it's not a relationship worth having. You got to take it seriously. And that advice has, has stuck with me for many, many years. I love that. Wow. I am clearly just like off on a romantic fling right now then. (laughs) I'm, I'm definitely like not, I don't know, not in the... My, much like Ross and Rachel, I am on a break from my writing right now. And I thought the break would last like four weeks and it's lasted much longer than that. (laughs) I thought I saw that you were doing a second novel. Did I make that up? No, I'm supposed to be. (laughs) Oh, okay. All right. (laughs) Yeah, I'm supposed to be. I will get back to it. I know it's calling to me. It's sending me late night you up texts. I will absolutely get back to it. We will get back together. It's just (laughs) post baby. I forgot, you know, between baby number one and number two, how much, you know, you just can't think like, you know, you just can't string a sentence together. And I also forgot how much they need to eat (laughs) and how often. Yes. I guess that's why we have multiple children because we just forget about this stuff. Yes. And maternity leave. (laughs) Hard to impose your own maternity leave when 
you know, writing is something that you feel like, well, of course you could do. You just have to like, you know, hit different keys on the keyboard and you'll be writing versus, you know, emailing or something. <laughs> like what's to stop you? You don't have to go anywhere. I mean, pandemic life too, but even before, like it's a job that is so self-motivated. Yeah. I don't know. It's sometimes harder to say I'm taking a real break. Yes. Or harder to justify for like, you know, obviously hard work. Completely. Yeah. It's that justification without, you know, and I think it's acute for us too, as women, just that constant, like the back of your mind of like, what should I be doing? You know, do I need to be doing more? Like, what can I, you know, what can I add to my day? That's not even the back of my mind. That's like at the very front of my mind. That is like the, my like prefrontal cortex. It's like a post-it on my forehead. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I feel immense amount of guilt just like sitting around and you're not just sitting around. You're raising a human being. That's true. No, seriously. I mean, it feels like you're sitting around, but your yeah. body and your mind are preoccupied with like sustaining human existence. So <laughs> it's no small feat. No, I'm serious. It's not the same. There's, it's yeah. not the same. So give yourself a break. There will always be time to produce more words. Thank you. Now, just can you send a quick email to my editor saying yes. exactly? I'll just send her this, you know, audio file. Okay, perfect. 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 What is that next novel about? Just like a one-liner. It's inspired by the Vanderbilt family of Newport and the sort of like, don't want to use a law and order, but like, you know, I was inspired by this like rip from the headlines, you know, because the Vanderbilt family, like the generations, you know, the, the, like, I don't think they were even called Vanderbilts anymore, but they lived, you know, on the top floor of the breakers, like one of the famous Newport, you know, mansions as a condition of like willing, you know, the breakers to the Newport Preservation Society. And a couple of years ago, they, depending on who you listen to, they got evicted from this sort of ancestral home. So I have a family, a fictional family in Newport that is kind of dealing with the same thing and trying to figure out, you know, what is legacy? You know, how do you go forward from that? And I'm, that's what I'm noodling on right now. We'll see, oh, we'll I see love how that. it goes. That's really fun. The homeless Vanderbilts. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. I know you already gave advice from Jim Shepard, but if you were giving advice just from you on writing or to an aspiring author, I feel like you've already we can already take so much from this conversation, but just as my always parting question, what would you say? Take it seriously. You know, I think I'm totally plagiarizing from Jim Shepard, but it's the, you know, it's the advice that I, I've taken with me, you know, thus far and have faith in yourself to just do the work. And just because you feel like, you know, as at the end of the day, you're reading your pages back and you're like, oh my God, this is the worst thing. This is the worst thing I've ever written. I do not deserve to be published. Nobody is going to read this. You can just get up the next morning and like hit delete and, or just start pressing, as you said earlier, just start pressing, start pressing keys (laughs) because that's what, you know, that's what the work requires. And that's the totally unglamorous part about creativity. Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this too, just like you know, we're not, I don't, I certainly don't know any like tortured artists, you know, I just know creative people who are just like working 
really hard, even when they don't want to, even when there's like really good, bad TV on, they're hitting those keys. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I love it. Well, I kind of hate to stop this podcast because I feel like I could chat with you all day, but I I should. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for your great book. It's so fun. And I mean, fun maybe is the wrong word. It's really enjoyable. It's a great, enjoyable, totally entertaining read. And I really, I really enjoyed it. I really did. And I'm, I'm so glad I wanted to be fun. You know, we're, there's so much seriousness and just heaviness going on around us. And to be able to just giggle, you know, with, with characters that you know, you feel like, you know, and you want to be friends with and characters who love each other. Those are the kinds of books I want to read. So hearing that you thought that this book was successful in that way is just awesome. (laughs) I want to read those books too. So good. (laughs) So I did. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. And good luck with your book launch. I'm so excited for it. Oh, thank you. I hope these next couple of weeks are smooth for you. And I'm excited to celebrate you when your book comes out. Oh, that's so sweet. And you too. And you're February 9th, right? February 9th. Yes. 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 Yeah. So just a couple weeks, couple weeks before you. One week. One week. Oh my gosh. So Yay. Uh, February it. birthdays. February birthdays. All right. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Zibby. Be well. You too. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks to today's sponsor, Chicken Soup for the Soul, Making Me Time, 101 Stories About Self-Care and Balance, edited by Amy Newmark. And just a reminder again, please pre-order a copy of my book, Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology, and go to my website under the anthology tab for the fundraiser, and I hope you'll buy a ticket and join me for, and I should have mentioned um, all proceeds go to COVID-19 research. So please join me for the fundraiser. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 